You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This morning, let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. I have entitled this sermon, Indecent Proposal, Indelible Grace. See if this sounds familiar. You're seeking the Lord, regularly reading His Word, you're trying, and I mean from the heart, to obey Him, confessing your sin, and yet your life is just hard. Or how about this? God, I am sorry. I messed up. I knew it was wrong as I was doing it. I knew that it was wrong. And now looking back, it looks so stupid. And yet I, was, I just went right on with it. And here I am, a big mess. This morning, I hope that you are encouraged by how brutally honest the Bible is. It, it, it just reminds you, you can't make this stuff up. Here it is, right here. This Bible is true. And it knows you. And it knows how to help you if you'll listen. So Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. 
Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away and his wife and all that belonged to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Marv said it exactly right. In this room, if we could catalog them, there are lots of fears. There is lots of pain. There is lots of confusion about what you want us to do. There's just before us, some of it our own making, some of it absolutely out of our control, but some of us are dealing with incredibly hard things in our life. Lord, some of us walked in this room today with a smile on our face and saying good things to each other, but we are hiding sin. Even now as we read this, there are people who are, who are very likely saying, I hope he doesn't... I hope he doesn't put his finger on this one. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would have free reign this morning. I pray that your word will be clear. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And I pray, Lord, that you would lift our eyes to see that Jesus has come and has made an end to our sin and we would believe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a little review. And I want a child to answer this one. If you look back one page um, or so in your Bible to Genesis chapter 11, what's the big thing that happened in Genesis chapter 11? And again, I'm looking for a child to answer this, and I'll give you a hint. It was the Tower of Babel. That's right. So here's what happens. Everybody in the world unites together in protest. You, you turn on the TV now and you see protest happening all over the place. The whole world is united in protest against God and deciding they're going to do it their way. And God scatters those people throughout all the lands. And he confuses their language so they can't communicate to each other. So they have all these people groups. And of all these people in all the world, at the very end of Genesis chapter 11, God begins to put his finger on one man, Abram. And we know very little about this guy. Basically, we know his family line. We know that he came from a grandfather and a father who both worshipped idols. We saw this in Joshua chapter 24. We see that his wife, Sarah, is unable to have children. And that really is all we know about this guy. But we come to Genesis chapter 12, and in verses 1 through 3, God makes incredible promises to this man. And so take a look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and let's just lift off for each other some of the promises that God has made to this man, Abram. What are they? Land. He's going to give him a land. What else? descendants. Again, it's amazing. His wife can't have children. He's promising, I'm going to give you descendants. But not just how many descendants, I mean, not just, not just a few descendants, how many? Yeah, I'm going to make you into a great nation. What else? I'm sorry, what did you say? 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. He doesn't want us to go to all the nations and baptize them. That's right. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name famous. And then he's going to use him to do what? To bless all the nations of the earth. And he promises if people oppose you, what does God promise? Abram, if people curse you, they're going to be under my curse. They bless you, and they're going to be under my blessing. And I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. We see down when we get to verses 4 through 9, God begins to keep these promises. And Abram arrives in the land, and when he gets there, he receives another promise. Look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram. So just notice, this is twice that God Himself appears to Abraham, to Abram, and He said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This morning, we're told about the first major adventure that happened in this promised land. And so let's just walk through this story. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. The first thing that we see, Abram gets to this land, this promise, and the first thing that happens is a big problem. And the problem is there's a famine, which means there's no food. They begin to get hungry. And so Abram decides to take he and everything that belongs to him down to Egypt. It seems a little strange that God promises Abram this land and the very first thing that happens in the land is that he's so hungry that he feels he has to leave the land to go somewhere else. And I want you to notice that, the, and I hope this encourages you, that, that the Bible doesn't comment one way or another whether Abraham is doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It just says there's a famine, and then in verse 10, it says that the famine was severe. I love how it says it says the famine was heavy in the land. It's, it's just a good reminder that hard things happen even when you belong to God and even when you are, as it were, walking in the center of His will. One writer said it like this, Abram had to feel his way forward without a special revelation at every step guided like us largely by circumstance. Either way, regardless of what God thinks about him leaving the land to go to Egypt, here's what we know, is that Abram decides to move to Egypt to avoid this famine. Good wisdom, common sense, unbelief. The Bible doesn't tell us, but here's what we do know. And by the time we get into verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13, Abram is being driven by things other than trust in God who has now twice appeared to take care of him. Which just reminds me, just as a little side note, that when we're in trouble, oftentimes we ask God, would you please just show me one more time would you please give me some sort of sign? Would you please do something miraculous? And if you do, I'm going to trust you. I want to remind you, Abraham has seen the Lord twice. But when trouble strikes, totally forget it. And you will too. What Abraham needs to do is he needs to trust what God has said. The very same thing that you and I need to do. Visions, 
regardless of how miraculous they are, they're not really going to help you. God has chosen to help you by His Word. We need to trust His Word. Look at verse 11. It came about when He came near to Egypt that He said to Sarah, His wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is His wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Running to Egypt seems like a smart move to Abram, but quickly we learn that it's not going to be without problems. Abram doesn't want to starve to death in Canaan, but he also knows that he's taken a risk going to Egypt. First, his wife is gorgeous. I can relate. The problem is that she's so gorgeous that he is afraid that the Egyptians are going to kill her just to get to him. So look at verse 13. Please, he says to Sarah, please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. So Abram has a plan. Sarah, just pretend, and I love how he starts it out. <laughs> please, I can just imagine. He probably is saying please. Please pretend that you're my sister instead of my wife. He gets Sarah to lie for him. When we get to Genesis 20, we're going to find out that this is not a total lie because he and, he and Sarah have the same daddy but different mama. Still, he's being deceitful and he's using a half-truth to cover up a whole lie and he's asking her to sin and to put herself into a terrible situation in order to save his own neck. It's very possible that Abraham was thinking, listen, we're going to go down to Egypt and there's going to be lots of people. You're going to cause a stir. There'll be lots of people who really think you're pretty and they're going to want to marry you. But let's just pretend that we're brother and sister and that way I'll have control over you. I'm, I get to decide who you marry. And so I'm just going to put people off indefinitely so that they, they can't marry you until it gets better and we go back home. Whatever the case may be, we notice that um, he probably doesn't um, expect what happens next. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her, I'm sure he wasn't expecting this, and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. They think she's so good looking that they praise her to Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt. She gets taken into his house, and let's just be clear, she doesn't get invited over for tea. She's not added to the janitorial staff. The end of verse 16, or the end of verse 19, makes it all too clear that she gets taken in as Pharaoh's wife. Abram basically hands his wife into another man's arms and Pharaoh must have been very fond of her because look at how he treats Abram in verse 16. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Thankfully, God doesn't let it go on forever. And in verse 17, he finally puts his foot down, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. 
Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Look at Pharaoh's question. What is this that you've done to me? It is a great question. And just notice that Abram has nothing to say. He says, nothing. Absolutely silent. Abram is scared to death as he goes down to Egypt that the Egyptians are going to be less moral than him and that he has to protect himself from their wickedness. But what we find out is that the Egyptians end up being more moral even than Abram. And we don't know what kind of plagues that were sent to Pharaoh's house, but by the word, some people have suggested that these are, that these are very painful skin boils or something, regardless of what happens, all we know is that, is that Pharaoh wants to wash his hands of the whole matter. Take your wife and get out of here. This story is sick. This story is sad. If you give any serious thought to everything that must have transpired in this story, the, the, the Bible often is very tasteful in how it tells its stories. If you think about what must have happened, you're, it's going to make you want to throw up. And you ought to want to throw up. The question this morning, and I want to encourage you, the question every single time you open the Bible ought to be, why has God preserved this story? Why was this story recorded and then painstakingly preserved for 4,000 years? What is it that God wants to say in this sordid story of Abram and Sarah? And I believe that God wants to show us two things. The first thing I believe that God wants to show us in this story is that in this text, Abram, who many consider to be a great hero, is a selfish, self-preserving coward. Let me, let me first remind you, as you read any story of the Bible, especially if there's words that you haven't seen in a while, and all of a sudden they show up and they're very you see it a lot in one passage, that ought to just... Pick your, you know, antennas up to say, oh, I think something's going on here. You notice as we read this passage, how many times the word wife is used? Look at, look at verse 11. He said to Sarah, his wife, and I just want to remind you, we already know Sarah is his wife. He's already told us that twice before. We don't need that information. But for emphasis, he said to Sarah, his wife, Genesis chapter 12, verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Verse 18, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Verse 19, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? So now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And then verse 20, they escorted him away with his wife. Can I remind you this morning that marriage is under attack from many different angles in this culture? Even in this room among Christians, it is easy for us to take our wives for granted. 
It is easy for us to be embittered against our wives. I just want to remind you what God says. God says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And he obtains favor from the Lord. Jesus says, what God has joined together in marriage, let no man separate. We ought to love and cherish our wives. We ought to love and cherish marriage even before we're married. Well, listen to this word from Hebrews 13. Here's a word that every single one of us in this culture needs to hear over and over and over again. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is sacred. But you look in this text and Abram is taking something that is very sacred and he's treating it like it's garbage. It is of no value. I don't know what else to say, but every single verse in this passage highlights Abram's sin. Look at verse 10. A famine hits and he goes to Egypt. And again, the jury's still out about whether or not it was God's will for him to go to Egypt, whether or not he should have gone to Egypt. There are times in the Bible that it's wrong for God's people to run to Egypt. There are other times in the Bible that God sends his people to Egypt and says, listen, if it gets bad, you can go to Egypt. There's not going to be a famine there. But either way, he doesn't seem to have gone there completely clinging to the Lord and his actions prove it. Look at verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt and he said to Sarah's wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. I want you to notice, when, when, it, when, is, when does Abram bring up this scheme to Sarah? He doesn't leave and say, listen, here's the plan. Before we go, I just want you to know, when we get to Egypt, I, I'm going to just pretend like you're my sister. No. When does he tell Sarah his plan? When it's way too late to turn back. Sarah's stuck. This is so convicting. This is not how we're supposed to lead. Number two, what's driving Abram's decisions at this point? Answer? Selfishness and fear. That's exactly right. And fear and faith simply cannot go together. What makes it so bad is that we've just, we've just seen the promises of Genesis 12, 1-3 that were then reiterated in Genesis 7. He's already promised Abram. God appeared. The Bible says the God of glory appeared to Abram. And here's what He said to him. Listen, if anybody curses you, I will curse them. If anybody blesses you, I will bless them. Abram, I have your back. I am going to give your descendants this land. And instead of trusting God, Abram decides that he's got a plan and he's going to take care of himself. How does that work out for Abram? Answer, not too good. What does Abram need to do right now? This is so simple. 
But this is right where you and I live. Abram needs to believe the promises of God. Matthew Henry says it so eloquently here. Nothing short of a strong faith could keep up good thoughts of God under such providence. But it is strong faith that thinks good thoughts of God, even in the worst of circumstances, that's exactly what we've been called to. We are the people who believe the promises of God, regardless of what the circumstances tell us. Look at verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. This is the sick calculation that you and I are tempted to make every day. Me before you. Right? This is the problem in our homes. Me before you. This is the problem in the culture. Me before you. This is the reason that there are socks on your floor and sink full of dirty dishes and diapers that need to be changed a while ago and projects around the house that need to be done a while ago and I, apologies that need to be made a long time ago. This is why there is money missing from some of your accounts and your spouse doesn't know about it. This is why there are there is in your internet history pornography sites. This is why there are these flirty conversations happening with you at work that you are trying to convince yourself or just no big deal deal. This is the calculation. It's Abram's math. Me before you. To protect himself, Abram asks his wife to lie, and that's bad enough, but it gets even worse because he asks her to put herself into a terrible situation so that, as Abram says, it may go well with me because of you. In other words, so that it may go well with me at your expense. Look at verse 15. Abram's, uh, excuse, sorry, Pharaoh's official saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And here's my question. Where is the fight? Where's the verse that says Abram pulled out a sword and said, you might end up with Sarah, but you'll kill me first. He let Sarah go quietly. And then it gets worse in verse 16 because he profits from her affair with Pharaoh. This is sick. Look at verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. You might be thinking, you know, maybe, just maybe, Abram's laying there, surrounded with all of his riches that he's starting to rack up because Pharaoh likes his wife. And you just imagine Abram laying there one night and he just gets to the point where he says, I can't take it anymore. God, you've got to help me because this thing's ending tonight. But he doesn't. God has to step in and rescue Sarah. So the first thing we need to see in this text 
is that Abram in this text is a selfish, self-preserving coward. Which makes what I believe is the second point of this text so amazing. And that is that our God is a radically, mind-bogglingly gracious promise keeper. Let's, let's remember what God has promised to Abram. Look at, look over to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's remember what God's promised Abram in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. If those promises fail, there is no Old Testament. If those promises fail, there is no nation of Israel. If those promises fail, there is no Jesus. If those promises fail, literally, literally the whole hinge of human history is hinging on these promises and it's Abram's fear and selfishness that's putting everything into jeopardy. But I want you to notice that God is determined to keep His promises. And His promise to bless Abram to make him a great nation and to use that nation to bless the whole world is going to march forward. And so in verse 17, Sarah is rescued. And so in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, Pharaoh gets plagues and Abram gets rich. And so in chapter 13, verse 14 and 16, in spite of this horrendous sin, God renews the promise that He makes to Abram. And notice how far He goes. Look over to chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And I hope that somebody is asking the question this morning, why in the world is God blessing a sinner like Abram? And here's what I have to say to you. Welcome to the world of grace. In one of the most clear moments of self-revelation, God is having a conversation with a man named Moses. Interestingly, he's the one who recorded this story. He's having a conversation with Moses. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, if you see me, you're going to die. And so God hides Moses in a crack in a rock. And he passes by. He says, you just see my back. And he passes by. And as he passes by, the Bible says that God proclaimed and here's what he proclaimed the lord the lord god compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth he keeps loving kindness for thousands he forgives iniquity transgression and sin in romans chapter 2 verse 4 we are told that god is rich in kindness and tolerance and patience in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he, he talks about him taking the, the riches of his grace and lavishing them on us. 
And it's so easy for us to read the Bible as if there's all these asterisks all over the place, as if these promises don't really apply to us, as if the promises apply to other people and other kinds of people besides us, but they don't apply to us. As if this stuff is not for us, but for somebody else. So here's my question. Who is it that needs to know that God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness? And the answer is selfish cowards like Abram. Liars. Adulterers. Those who sleep with other people's spouses. Those who spent their marriages taking care of themselves. Who needs to hear that God is full of grace? Porn addicts. Selfish people. And we don't tend to admit these things because we have this crazy idea that if we admit these things, somehow that we're gonna gonna be rejected by God if we would just come clean. But I'm begging you to look at this passage. Look at the Bible. This is a lie. And it's, a, it's an ancient lie that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents sinned. What was the very first thing they wanted to do? Hide. Here's what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus loves us, and I'm quoting here, released us from our sins by His blood. Listen to what God is saying. That if this morning, that instead of hiding, that that you would believe what Revelation 1 verse 5 says, that, that Jesus loves us and has released us from our sins by His blood, the Bible says that you will be accepted. You will be forgiven. You will be declared to be a child of God and welcomed. I'm going to show you this. Look look over to Exodus chapter 34, this passage I quoted earlier. Look at Exodus 34 and look at verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That, in just a few verses, is the gospel. He forgives, but He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Here's the Gospel. That God has taken that wrath that the guilty deserve and has put it on Christ. Punished Him for what you've done wrong. In reality, what the Bible is saying is that God has come Himself to be a better hero than Abram. 
Here's the good news that God wants you to know. And we know He wants you to know it because He he keeps telling us in every single passage that we read. He keeps repeating it in every single story in the Bible. God Himself has stepped into our mess in order to rescue us. It is very easy for us to read the Bible and to go to the Bible hoping that we're going to find heroes that we can emulate. Now go to the Bible and look for a Savior. The good news of the Bible is that God has come to be the hero that we're looking for. The hero who is faithful when every other human being, including us, fails. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 13. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you that I may live on account of you. I am here this morning to proclaim to you a Savior who said exactly the opposite. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her so that you would believe and be able to say with all of God's people, like Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Does this mean if you come to Jesus that all your questions are going to be answered? That your life will always make sense and that you'll understand what God is doing with all the pain in your life? And the answer is no. Just like Abram, you're going to have to spend so much of your life feeling your way around without clear direction at every step. And you'll have to learn to think good thoughts of God even when your way is hard. But it does mean that whatever happens, you'll know that God loves you. That He is committed to you. And that He is absolutely committed to keeping every single promise. Let's pray. Father, every single one of us has questions. Every single one of us has things in our life that we wish were different. Every single one of us have probably prayed over and over and over again that there are things in our life that you would fix And yet you haven't. 
Every single one of us on a regular basis faces things where we don't know what to do. God, I pray that you would work rugged faith in us. Regardless of what providence comes our way, Father, I pray that we would think good thoughts of you. We would trust in what you have said. Lord, I pray that you would keep every single promise to work all things together for our good. Father in heaven, I pray for every single unbeliever in this room who's trying to be nice, but if you could work and peel back to the place of motive, they're selfish. They're trusting themselves and their own wisdom to solve their problems. They're trying to hide their sin. And they try to hide from you in their sin. Lord, I pray that you would do what you did for Abram. I pray you'd do what you did for Sarah and rescue them. I pray that you would lavish them with grace. God, I pray you'd do it today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.